Uh, our Old Testament reading, uh, which is the reading uh, I'll be speaking on imminently, is taken from Exodus chapter 12, uh, reading verses 1 to 13, and then jumping to verses 29 to 32. And this can be found on page 53 in the Bibles in the chairs. So, Exodus chapter 12, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb... Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight." Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And continuing from verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron at night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Uh, let me uh, start by asking you a question. How do you remember... When you've got something important that you need to commit to memory, what do you do? I know it's a slightly unusual question because most of the time we just, we just do, don't we? And we've just spent a period of time remembering the events of a century ago, remembering those servicemen and women who gave, have given over their lives to serve us. And to aid our, our memory, we've developed a complex series of rituals and symbols which are subtly added to year on year to help keep on making that memory ours. 
And I wonder if you can think uh, in your own lives, in your, the lives of your family, if you have something similar, little traditions or legends or symbols that, that grow and grow to help remember a significant person or place or time in your life. Or perhaps like me, you've got a slightly suspect memory. Uh, my uh, lovely wife, Hannah, uh, is constantly amazed at my ability to remember uh, sporting trivia from before I was even born, uh, but to fail to remember what I was meant to get in the supermarket on the way home from work, or actually far more important things uh, than that, unfortunately. Um, and as we approach Exodus 12, we see a passage full of an instruction to remember. And we shouldn't be surprised to find that God's people were, were just like us. At times they were great at remembering, but at times they forgot. And so here in the text, they're given specific instructions to help them remember what they'd been set free from, to remember how they'd been set free, and what they'd been set free for. And we're going to explore those uh, three ideas in the short time we have this morning, looking first at that text in Exodus, but also with the incredible blessing of the perspective of the New Testament. So to begin, we're going to consider what the Israelites were to remember about what they had been set free from. And any reading of Exodus 12 uh, can only best make sense when we, we turn back a chapter and look to the events of Exodus 11 and consider what had happened to the Israelites to date. The book of Genesis ends and things look great. The Israelites uh, are in Egypt and they are loved because of Joseph, but it doesn't take long for things to get worse. Now there's a new king, the pharaoh, and he doesn't care about Joseph. He doesn't care about what Joseph had done for Egypt. He just sees this foreign people in his land as a threat. And so he takes steps to remove that threat. First, they're enslaved. And then there's a brutal assault on them and their children with the command to kill the newborn boys. And it's into that scene that we're introduced to Moses, Having been rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, he flees Egypt only to meet God and be commissioned by him to return and to work to free God's people. And it's on the eve of the 10th plague that we meet Moses in communication with God in Exodus 11. And we see that throughout Moses' life, God had been shaping him. He then endured trial after trial but he'd also known God's power to deliver him from those trials and those sufferings. One commentator says that he'd been instilled with a, with a Passover faith before Passover even started. How do you respond in times of trial? How do, how do you respond in times of, of suffering? Where do you turn for help? Perhaps it's to family or to friends. Perhaps it's inwardly to ourselves to try and get it through. I know in my own life, that's a temptation to rely on my own strength and not to look beyond me. Moses had learned through painful experience, through all of his personal trials, that the only place he could turn to was to the Lord, his God. And I've been challenged working to put this together to do that myself more when I know I'm in a time of trial or suffering. That only by turning to God can I get through Moses had learned this, and he'd learned what he needed to to then walk with God's people and to walk them through the suffering and trial of enduring slavery and their escape. And as Exodus 11 ends, we have the promise of the plague 
of the firstborn, the tenth plague that God had sent on Egypt. In each of the plagues to date, God had shown that the Egyptian gods were fakes. They were powerless to do anything against the Lord of Lords, the God of heaven and of earth. But Exodus 11 has a subtle shift in the way that God talks about these plagues. In Exodus 11 verse 1, God says, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. In the plagues leading up to this point, God had used Moses as the messenger. Go and tell the Pharaoh what is to come. But not this plague, not this tenth plague. Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. The plague will be solely the work of God. But not just that. This is also a promise. Afterwards, he will let you go. So not just is this plague the sole work of God, but there is the promise. Deliverance is coming. Freedom is coming. Yet, as that scene ends, we move into Exodus 12. It must have looked, if you were an Israelite, a slave, like things hadn't really changed a great deal. Moses had failed, maybe. God had failed. The Pharaoh was still hard-hearted. You were still slaves. Nothing had really changed. And it's into that scene that Israel are called to an act of incredible faith. They're called to look beyond the difficulty of that circumstance in which they found themselves, wondering if the words of Moses were true, wondering if the God who'd done so much more could do even more, and wondering whether or not they could step out in faith and do all that God was to ask of them. And again, I find that a great challenge because there are times, I'm sure you will agree, in our lives where we reflect on our own walk with God and we're challenged either to doubt the promises that we have been made through Christ or to doubt our ability to live for him. Whether it's a repeated sin, whether it's a particular issue or whether it's just a consistent sensation of falling just short. And it would be so easy, wouldn't it, to just stop, to collapse and to give up and to conclude that those promises either aren't true or they're, they're not for me. But it, seeing God's promises to his people in Exodus, reminding ourselves of the promises he makes to us through Christ, promises like those ones we read about in, in 1 Peter earlier, that remind us that we are uh, the receivers of an incredible gift of grace, an incredible gift of grace, an incredible steadfast love, that though we are weak is strong, that those promises are for us, in our moments of great weakness, as well as in our moments of strength. We're called, just like they were, to a Passover faith, to stepping out and trusting that the promises God makes are true. And so if that was what the Israelites were to remember about how, sorry, what they were being set free from, they're next called in our passage this morning to remember how they were to be set free, to remember what God was going to do to bring them to freedom. And we see that most vividly in the first 13 verses of chapter 12. And so as we look to these verses, let's try for a moment and step back into that story. Try to picture yourself there that night. What must it have been like receiving the news from Moses of what we had to go and do? To go and to slaughter a lamb? To paint the, 
the blood of that animal on the frames of our doors to meet together, to share a meal together, would we have done it willingly? Or would we, would we have done it straight away? Or would we have questioned, quizzed, queried the wisdom? Really? Is this what we've got to do? And after we'd done that deed, after we took the animal, killed it, and painted the blood on the door frames, what a strange mixture of, of sounds and smells must have filled the homes of the Israelites. Roasting lamb on the fire, the taste of bitter herbs, the smell of fresh blood on the door frame. How would we have responded? Would we have gathered close together, huddled against the night and the uncertainty of what was ahead? Or would we have been convinced that the God who'd done all that he had so far in Egypt was about to go one more step and to take us out into freedom? Well, these verses, I think, give us a sense that all of that was going on in and around Egypt and more. But in the text, we find uh, three lessons for us uh, and one warning. And the first lesson we have from this Passover narrative is to be united. The Passover was a time of great unity. We read, don't we, in the, in the opening six verses, that if the household was too small to merit one animal to itself, they were to gather together, to share, to share what they had, and then to eat together. Nothing was to be wasted. The people would be united in this celebration and in this act of remembrance of all that God had done. And verse 6 says, you shall keep it, sorry, this is the animal, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, the whole people were to be together. They were to be a people characterized by unity. And the second lesson of this section of Exodus is that it was a time to be distinctive, just as we are to be distinctive in the world around us. In the previous plagues, when the plague had fallen upon Egypt, God hadn't needed some kind of visible symbol to tell the difference between his people and the Egyptians. He's God. He knows. He doesn't need a picture, does he? And yet here, he says to his people, take the blood and paint it on the door frames of your homes. I mean, how strange a sight that must have been to the Egyptian neighbors that night. Like, what are they doing across the street? That's a bit, a bit grisly. It's a bit grim. What's that going to bring the house prices down? Like, what, what, what are they playing at? And it must have looked surreal, wasn't it? But they were to be a people who were distinctive, different, vividly, gruesomely different from those around them. They were to make an act of public faith. So they were to be united and they were to be distinctive. And they were to expect freedom. As they ate, they were told to dress, ready to leave, belts tied, sandals on, and to eat with haste because freedom was just around the corner. And this is the first time in the Exodus narratives where they're told to get ready to do this again at a later date. They're told, they're given an instruction that, that this meal is going to be a meal of remembrance at a later time. Why, in the midst of this turmoil and struggle against slavery, does God say to his people, you're going to do this. This is to be the first day of the first month of the year. And you're going to do this every year since. Because there are people not only who have to remember, but just like us, there are people who forget. And if you want a picture of that forgetfulness, Psalm 78 gives you it. It gives a double history in Psalm 78 of the people of Israel, including the Passover narrative, and the people of Israel's failure to remember their willful wandering from God. 
So not only are there three lessons, the lesson to be united, to be distinctive, and to expect our freedom, but there's a warning against forgetfulness, forgetting the truths of the promises given to us by God. And I know that I'm forgetful in every sense, not least about these truths, but we're here commanded to remember again, aren't we? To look to the Lamb of Passover, but to look beyond the Lamb of Passover, to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and to remember how we have been set free, how we who deserved so little, so mired in our sin, have been made clean by his blood. And these truths are explored for us in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to this confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So not only are we to remember what we were set free from, we're to remember how we were set free, set free by the death of Christ. Finally, they're told to remember what they have been set free for. Now, this is in this chunk of Exodus 12 we didn't read together, so you might find it helpful to have that in front of you. You know, we live in a time, don't we, where freedom is perceived to be an essential, an inalienable right, can't be taken away. And any effort that we make to restrict the freedom of somebody else is condemned. But the problem with that view of freedom we have in our world today is that it's, it's too small. We talk a lot about what we're free from, but we don't talk a lot about what we're free then to do. Well, Exodus tells the people what they'd been set free from, but then what they were set free to do or what they were set free for. And they were set free for a living relationship with the Lord their God. And we're the same, aren't we? We have been set free from that burden of sin to be set free for a living relationship with God. And Exodus 12 gives vivid pictures of this. Firstly, they're commanded to remove uh, leaven. I think that's how you say it, leaven, leaven, leaven. It's like you say tomato, I say tomato, isn't it? Um, from the household, to only unleavened bread. I didn't know this about leaven until a couple of weeks ago. Apparently, it was a bit like yeast. And every time you baked, you'd keep a little bit of it back, and you'd put it in your dough, and it would enrich the dough like yeast, and you'd bake it again. And so to remove leaven from the house was like saying to your entire household, it's time for a fresh start. We're putting the clock back to zero. Let's press reset. And that was what the Israelites were to do. They were to have a completely fresh start, to be reminded of their freedom, this incredible gift they'd been given. And then verses 21 to 27 describe the instructions to the elders of Israel from Moses, the instructions to go out and do what had to be done with the blood of the Lamb, but to live by faith as well. And all of these point to their faith and point to them knowing that by the blood of the lamb, by the death of the lamb, their freedom, their salvation was to be assured. And none of this was in their own power. They weren't to remember what they had done and pat each other on the back. Well done, great lamb, top work. They were to remember what the Lord had done. This was to be the Lord's Passover, not theirs. When the Lord passed over the house of Israel and struck the Egyptians and spared them. So what are we set free for? 
Well, the Passover vividly demonstrates then and now that we're saved for worship. We're saved to praise God. We're saved to be obedient to him. And we're saved to rejoice. When the Israelites finally gain their freedom and they pass through that, the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, and they make it to the other side, they don't pause, shake hands, and keep going. They stop, don't they? And they rejoice and they sing songs of praise. They have a great party because they're free. And they're tasting freedom for the first time. But that freedom's a shadow, a shadow of the freedom that we have in Christ. So if we're set free by the Son, well, we are free indeed. So how do we regularly celebrate? How do we rejoice? How do we live lives shaped by thanksgiving for all that God's done for us? Well, I was challenged uh, this week by someone far wiser than me to, th- to think about this in the context of, of what you do first thing in the morning. So what do you do when you first wake up? I know that what I tend to do, once I've got over the horror that it's like quarter past six and I've got to get up and all the other associated grimness, is, is, is to pick my phone up, check my work email. This is depressing, isn't it? Check my work emails. There's not normally an email because it's quarter past six in the morning and I've gone to bed at 11 o'clock at night. Who's going to be emailed you in those five hours? Check my work emails, check news headlines, maybe a little bit of social media, and then face the day ahead. It's, that's, a, that's an admission of failure on my part, isn't it? Lay myself bare at this point. Um, and I've resolved, actually, in light of this, to start each day with a different focus, with a focus on thanksgiving. Not a, a, a cry of, of, of woe that I've got to wake up, but a, but a sense of thanksgiving for all that God has done in the days gone by and all that God will do and opportunities he's given in the days ahead. And I'm sure you can think of moments in your day which you could reclaim Reclaim for rejoicing, reclaim for thanksgiving. Maybe it's the commute to work. Maybe it's what you listen to as you're moving from place to place. Instead of the radio or music, it could be a really helpful Christian podcast of of which there are many, or some great Christian music of which there is increasingly more. And this is coming from a great Christian music skeptic of many years standing, if anyone wants to uh, query me on that. Um, Or even just taking 10 minutes out of a lunch break to go and to to set aside some time to, to, to pray and to be with God, to open his word, to be shaped by thanksgiving. And we're not to do this as individual islands, we're to do this together. The next part of that reading we just read um, from from Hebrews and Hebrews 10 talks about the need to meet together, to encourage one another, to challenge one another when we know and we see one another falling back, to bring each other up, just like those Israelites were to work together as a community as they moved out to freedom. So we are to be together, a people characterized by unity, rejoicing together. So let's resolve to make the most of our time together here, now, this morning, or on a Wednesday night, whether it's midweek groups, or a prayer meeting, or those great events coming up as we approach Christmas. Let's resolve to make the most of those opportunities to be a community distinctive in our faith in Christ and united by our love of him. I don't know if you've uh, come across the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, I hadn't. I knew of it. I knew it was a kind of a Reformation document um, until uh, recently. And actually, I, I can't claim credit for this myself. There's this book on Exodus, which was a Chris Redfern recommendation. Um, it is brilliant. Echoes of Exodus. And if this morning's given you a, a small taste of actually this Exodus thing, it's fascinating, which, which t- tells how the tracing themes of redemption through Scripture, how the themes explored in Exodus go all the way back to the very beginning to Genesis and all the way forward, right through to Revelation. 
likening it to the, the, the movements of music in a symphony, the themes of Exodus. And uh, the authors, Alistair Roberts, who I think is a PhD student at Durham, um, and Andrew Wilson, who writes on Think Theology and he's a church, um, make this comparison on their reflection on the Passover. And they say, right, look to the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a series of question and answer. And the first question in the Catechism uh, is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? And, and this is the answer. And with this, I'll, I'll finish before we stand to sing. What is your only hope, your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the powers of the devil. He, has all, he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen.